You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. For Christians, the Sunday after Easter is, feels kind of like the week after the Super Bowl, doesn't it? The big game is over. The, uh, the hype has come and gone, and now you turn on the television to catch some sports, and there's nothing on but like bowling. You're like, you're right, there's so much hype, so much anticipation, so much buildup, and then, ah, it's over. That's kind of how it feels going from 1 Corinthians 15 to 1 Corinthians 16, doesn't it? Chapter 15 was this lofty, extended exposition of the most important event in human history and all its implications. The resurrection of Jesus, we saw, changes everything. Like, not just for us, but for the whole world. Chapter 15 leaves us breathless with anticipation, with hope. And then we read chapter 16, you just heard it, and it's just this hodgepodge of everyday instructions and travel plans and greetings and names we can't pronounce. Good job, Brandon, on the pronunciation. Chapter 15 was so extraordinary. And then we get to chapter 16, and it's so very ordinary, isn't it? It's interesting. If you follow the liturgical calendar of the church, you're familiar with the seasons of the church year. Uh, There's Advent, then there's Christmas, then there's Lent, then there's Easter. Easter is actually not just one day. It's a a 50-day season uh, from Easter Sunday all the way through Pentecost. You know what the season after Easter is called? Ordinary time. That's the official name. It doesn't doesn't even get a good name. It's just ordinary time. And most of the church year falls under ordinary time. Most of life actually falls under ordinary time, doesn't it? Our lives are fairly ordinary. But ordinary time is actually not disconnected from the promises of Easter. Like ordinary time is where we actually live out the promises of Easter for the rest of the year. What does it look like for the church to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, that's what chapter 16 is all about. It's about the ordinary life of the church, which is always undergirded and empowered by our new life in the risen Christ. And so chapter 15 results in the kind of life that you see in chapter 16. We have been in 1 Corinthians since August. And today is the 28th and final sermon in 1 Corinthians. Some of you are like, awesome. I'm ready for this to be over. Uh, But it's been amazing to spend time in this letter. And as Paul concludes this letter, today we're reminded that it really is a letter. There's all these names and greetings. And we really have been reading someone else's mail uh, since August. But we've learned a lot, haven't we? About what it means to be the church in a culture that's predominated by secular wisdom, secular values. And so today, as we close, I just wanna highlight a few things from chapter 16 about the ordinary life and ministry of the church. There's a lot of topics we could draw uh, from this chapter. I just wanna mention three of them. First, generosity. Generosity. The, The ordinary life and ministry of the church is characterized by generosity. 
Look at verse one of chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible and you wanna open, uh, there's some Bibles there in front of you. It's on page 905 in those Bibles if you wanna follow along. 1 Corinthians 16, page 905. How is the church supposed to use her resources? Well, we have an example right here. Look at verse one. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints. Whenever Paul says now concerning, it means that the Corinthians had asked him about this and he's answering their question. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, which is another region, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, this is talking specifically about giving to the poor. This is talking about alms giving. And Paul doesn't really give much detail about what this gift is for, but what he does call it is the collection for the saints, which tells us it was to be given directly to people who were in need. And he says, this is for the saints in Jerusalem. The gift is going to Jerusalem because at this time there was a famine in Jerusalem. So many of the saints, many of the people in the church were suffering great need. And even though the Corinthians were Gentile Christians living in Achaia, which is Western Greece, uh, they were connected to the Jewish, predominantly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, which was further east from them. And they were joined to them in Christ and therefore they had to care about them. And the way that they would show their care was not just to offer up thoughts and prayers, right? The way they would demonstrate their care for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem was to share their resources. And so Paul gives the Corinthians some very practical principles related to giving. You see them there in verse two and three. First, he gives them the principle of regularity. You see that in verse two? Regularity, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. So set aside something to give every Sunday, every resurrection day. So by connecting giving to Sunday, Paul helps the Corinthians see giving as an act of worship, which it is, right? And doing it every week helped them to give out of their first fruits rather than giving out of their leftovers. And so giving should be regular and it should be a first fruit kind of thing, a first priority thing. One of the things that has helped my wife and I see giving in this way, it's a simple thing, is the way the categories in, in our budget, just broadly speaking, we've sort of organized our budget like this, giving, saving, spending. Now I understand there's fixed costs, the things that we have to do in spending, but we wanna see it just that giving is first, then saving, then spending, rather than spending, saving, and then giving, because then we'd be tempted just to give whatever's left over. This is what Paul is saying. Make it regular, make a plan, make it out of your first fruits. It's the priority of, or the principle of regularity. The second principle you see there in verse two is the principle of inclusivity, meaning giving is for everyone. Look at that, verse two, each of you is to put something aside, not just the wealthy among you, not just the ones who have surplus of income, each of you. Now we have seen in this book that there were undoubtedly really wealthy people in the church who could have just you know, 
covered the whole gift to Jerusalem. It's like, well, so-and-so is gonna take care of our church's gift to, to Jerusalem. But that would have robbed the others of an opportunity to give, wouldn't it? Even the poor could give generously. In fact, oftentimes the poor give the most generously when you think in terms of percentages. Inclusivity. The third principle you see here is the principle of proportionality. Proportionality. He says, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, meaning give in proportion to what you have. And this is where giving actually becomes fun and spontaneous because the more God entrusts to us, the more we can give, the more needs we can meet. And, and so when, he, when he's talking about proportionality, he's saying something like, hey, if you're making $50,000 a year and you give 10% away, that's pretty significant. That's a significant gift out of $50,000 a year. But if the Lord prospers you and now that you're making $500,000 a year, Right? To give 10% of that away barely makes a dent uh, in your income and in your lifestyle. And so even though you would be giving way more uh, dollars away than you were before, it's not necessarily proportional to how God has prospered you. So look for ways to be creative and spontaneous as God prospers you. Give proportionally. And then the final principle uh, is the principle of Transparency and accountability. Look at verse three. Paul says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you Corinthians accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not gonna handle the money, right? You, you choose trustworthy people from among yourselves to handle the money. See, when you give to a church, when you give to an organization, there should be transparency and accountability in how that money is used. Uh, the members of Providence Church know that our financials are always open for inspection. You can look at them, right? There's transparency. They also know that, that a third-party company keeps our books. They also know that we have qualified elders and deacons making the financial decisions of our church. That's accountability. So according to this, giving is to be regular, it's to be inclusive, it's to be proportional, and it's to be accountable, these are just ordinary, boring, everyday, unseen practices that help the church be generous, right? It, ordinary principles facilitate the generosity of the church. They don't make us generous. What makes us generous in our hearts is the grace of God. But they do help the church live generosity out collectively, corporately. But the grace of God is what gives us generous hearts. Paul actually makes this point in the second letter to Corinthians. In chapters eight and nine of 2 Corinthians, he, he gives a more extended discussion of this collection for the saints. Now, I just wanted you to hear a couple verses from 2 Corinthians 8 about how the grace of God gives us a generous heart. Listen to this. This is, uh, he's also talking to Corinth, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. How amazing is that? That out of their extreme poverty, they overflowed into a wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and they gave beyond their means. 
of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. How, do you, how can you be poor and yet beg for the opportunity to give to help others? What would cause that kind of change of heart? The grace of God. Verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, we can give generously because Jesus gave generously. He gave everything he had to enrich us, and that enables his church to live in the same way. And do you know that the early church was famous for their generosity? Famous for it. The, the, one of the emperors in Rome, Julian, uh, I think in the 300s, he despised the church. He persecuted Christians. He persecuted the church. But this is what Julian said about some of the earliest Christians. He said, the Christian cause has been specially advanced through their loving service rendered to strangers. I love that. He said, it's a scandal that there is not a single one of them who is a beggar. They care not only for their own poor, but they care for our poor as well. That was the reputation of the church, generosity. And I wanted you to know that you guys display that same kind of generosity. You really do. Providence as a church gives systematically to needs and ministries outside of our church. 20% of everything that's given goes outside of our church. Uh, but because of your generosity, every year there's a surplus. Every year there's more to give away. Our financial team is always having to ask the question every year, what extra needs can we meet? Who else can we bless? Because we've, gone, the, we've sent out what's been budgeted, but then there's more to give away. And I wanted you to hear this tweet or this uh, text that I got from um, John Monger a couple months ago. John, if you've met John, he's the pastor of the International Restoration Church here in Austin. Uh, he was a refugee to Austin and now his, his church regularly uh, uh, helps and supports refugees here in Austin, shares the gospel with them, cares for them, and we support them regularly. And I got this text message out of the blue. He said, hi, Pastor Todd. Thank you so much for Providence's financial support of $25,000 which was in addition to what we monthly support their church. He says, it's gonna be a great help for building the house of God in IRC. Our words are not enough to thank you. We're praying for you and for Providence every morning. And that's true. They pray for us every morning. I don't pray for anything every morning. But John Monger and IRC pray for us every morning. And he said, may God bless you abundantly. May God bless you abundantly. See, out of your generosity, it overflowed to John and his, and his staff there. And I guarantee you, it didn't stay with him. It's overflowing to the poor, to those who need it, to those in great need, right? It's generosity. The ordinary life and ministry of the church is characterized by generosity, but it's also characterized by discipleship. Discipleship, that's the second thing I want us to see in this chapter, discipleship. And when I just say discipleship, I mean making disciples of Jesus and living as disciples of Jesus. Both things are true. So let's talk first about making disciples. 
Jesus builds his church actually through ordinary people doing ordinary things like sharing their faith, like teaching, like preaching, like serving. Look at all the names of ordinary disciple makers that you see in this chapter. You've got, you've got those who preach and teach, like Paul himself. Look what Paul says about himself, starting in verse five. Paul says, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter with you so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse seven, for I, don't, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I don't want it just to be a quick trip, quick stop. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. I love that. Like he's acknowledging that discipleship takes time. Discipleship is relational. It involves face-to-face teaching and counsel and care. It takes time. But verse eight, he says, I'll stay in Ephesus. That's where he is when he's writing this letter. I'm gonna stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Verse nine, because a wide door for effective work, effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries. So Paul is making disciples wherever he goes and there are both opportunities and there's opposition, which means discipleship is risky. It's always risky. It's risky to take those opportunities to make disciples. It's also risky to face the opposition that we'll have in in doing that. And so Paul can't come to Corinth right now, so he sends one of his disciples. He sends Timothy. Look what it says about Timothy in verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the same work of the Lord as I am. So Timothy's doing the same work of making disciples that Paul is doing. He's just passing on what Paul has entrusted to him. And then there's Apollos. Look at Apollos in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos. Again, when, they, when, he, when Paul says now concerning, that means they've asked about this, uh, this thing and they've asked, when are you sending Apollos back to us? Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Opportunity. Apollos was one of the Corinthians' favorite speakers, preachers, teachers. We, we remember that back in chapter one, chapter three. There were some that were like, I follow Apollos. That's my guy. I listen to his podcast, his teaching. I like Apollos. They loved Apollos because he was such a powerful speaker. But do you know how Apollos got his start as a preacher? He was actually discipled by a Corinthian couple, Priscilla and Aquila. You see them listed there at the end of uh, of chapter 16, you see them in verse 19. Uh, Prisca or Priscilla uh, and, and her husband Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were full-time tent makers in Corinth, but now they've moved to Ephesus. They're living in Ephesus now. And by the way, they, they, they host a church in their home. I think it's amazing. They're, they're not full-time ministers. They, they have a job, they have a profession, and, and yet they host a church in their house. But I want you to listen to what happened in Acts chapter 18. A few years before 1 Corinthians was written, listen to what happened. Acts 18 says, now a Jew named Apollos, this is our guy, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus and he was an eloquent man. So he was a great speaker already. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he had taken some seminary classes. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Again, powerful speaker. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't that amazing? That this godly couple who weren't vocational ministers, they were tent makers, they took aside this gifted young minister and they discipled him in the scriptures. They showed him the way of God more accurately. And then you know what happened after that? Apollos went to Corinth and he preached boldly and many became Christians and he, and he, and he made many disciples there in Corinth. But it started with Priscilla and Aquila. And I want you to know that many of you are doing the same kind of thing as Aquila and Priscilla. We, we see it. You are sitting down in coffee shops and living rooms and backyards all over town explaining the way of God more accurately, sharing the gospel, teaching others the word of God in very simple ways, speaking, discipling one another in your D groups, speaking the truth in love, helping each other mature in the faith. That's just discipleship. That's discipleship. But we don't only make disciples by teaching and preaching God's word. We, act, we actually do it also by putting God's word into practice in our actual lives. You see that in Stephanus. Look at Stephanus in uh, verse 15. Paul says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, in our region, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these. Submit yourselves to people like this and to every fellow worker and laborer. Stephanus and his household were laboring in the Lord. They had devoted themselves to serving in a variety of ways. And because of that, Paul essentially calls them spiritual leaders. He's like, submit to them, be subject to them, give them honor, right? Imitate them because they are imitating Jesus. And I want you to know that many of you are doing the same kinds of things that Stephanus was doing. You are embodying the word of God in your service through things like hospitality, through things like encouragement, through things like mercy ministry. And in doing so, you are discipling others. You're making disciples. You're teaching them the way of Jesus as you live it out, right? But the church doesn't just make disciples. We're also called to live as disciples. And um, look at verses 13 and 14. This is, uh, in many ways, Paul's final charge to the Corinthians. And it's a description of what it looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus. Let me read it. It's really short. Verse 13 be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So it's, that's what it looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus. Five pithy little commands that he gives us. He says, be watchful, meaning be watchful for the coming of Jesus. Live like he's coming. Live as if he were coming back today. How would that change the way we lived our lives? Be watchful. Be aware that we're in a spiritual battle and the world, the flesh, and the devil want to take you down. Be watchful. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Not stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in the faith. Like stand firm in objective truth, not our subjective experience of truth. See, our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus 
Our faith is in the gospel. Paul has already said it in chapter 15. He said, now I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. The gospel is where we stand firm. That is our solid ground. And then the next two commands go together. He says, act like men and be strong. You could translate that, be courageous and be strong. This is not a call to masculinity as opposed to femininity. It's a call to be strong and courageous in battle. These commands are rooted in what was the masculine nature of warfare in in the ancient world. And, And it's acknowledging that we're in a battle. And so this is for all Christians, men and women, because to live as a disciple of Jesus requires courage. It requires us to find our strength in the Lord. And then finally, he says, let all that you be done in love, which in many ways is a summary of, the, of all that Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians. One commentator says, this command distills the message of the whole letter into a single sentence. Let all that you do be done in love. That's what Paul's been trying to get the Corinthians to do the, the whole time because they were super gifted. They were super resourced. They were super knowledgeable, but that didn't amount to anything if they didn't have love. See, a disciple of Jesus lives like Jesus and Jesus was defined by love. In fact, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so that's what love looks like. That's how a disciple of Jesus is to live. We lay down our lives for one another. So we see here in chapter 16 that discipleship is actually baked into the ordinary rhythms and practices of the church. It's just part of what we do. Making disciples and living in disciples is an everyday life kind of thing. It's not glamorous, but it's glorious, right? It's glorious. This week I was, I came across some words from a pastor in Houston and they were so fitting to this passage that I was like, well, I'm I'm gonna, I gotta share some of that. And it was a, it was a post called um, praising boringness. And um, again, he's a pastor in Houston and he says, tonight, I went up to the church for a deacon meeting. On the one hand, it's nothing special, just people serving our church. They broke into teams and worked on things ranging from widow ministry to benevolence to funerals. And here's the thing about meetings. They aren't flashy, but they're how things get done in a healthy church. Without mundane, boring meetings, churches flounder. And he said, after our meeting, I walked the building. ESL was meeting in most of the other classrooms. There was a young adult Bible study in another classroom. Nothing was flashy, but little miracles were happening all around. Immigrants from all over the world were sitting with mentors learning English. This ministry helps with refugees in our city. It's almost invisible to outsiders, but week by week, people are growing and changing. Same for the young adult groups. 10 to 12 folks sitting around a table discussing the Bible and praying for one another. It's not huge, it doesn't have a cool name, but each week people are growing and changing. This is the church, a typical Tuesday night of meetings and ministry that no one sees. Everyone loves Easter crowds, but the real work happens on innumerable Tuesday nights with people helping one another. Ministry is usually in the small not on a stage. The ordinary is where the extraordinary is forged. I love that. 
I love that. The ordinary life and ministry of the church is characterized by generosity. It's characterized by discipleship. And lastly, and very briefly, it's characterized by unity, by unity. Look at, the, look at the way he closes this letter. Look at verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, which is in Ephesus, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So a lot of greeting going on here, right? To, to, to greet someone is to offer them welcome, to offer them warmth. Greeting is a sign of relationship. Greeting is, is, is evidence of unity. And so Paul does two things in these verses with all these greetings. First, he reminds the Corinthians of their unity with the larger church, right? I, I think it was probably easy for the Corinthians to get prideful as a church, because they lived in this cosmopolitan city. They were exposed to great learning and philosophy and culture and commerce. They were gifted and smart. Some of them were wealthy. And so I think it'd be easy for them to think, hey, we're doing church the right way, therefore we don't need anyone else. But Paul says, no, you're actually part of a larger family. He lets them know this just with these greetings, that in Christ, you've been united with all the churches in Asia, in Galatia, in Jerusalem, both Jews and Gentiles. City folk, country folk, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, they're your family. Corinthians, you're not a standalone religious organization. You need to know that. It's the same for us, for Providence. Like Providence Church is not autonomous. We are unified with the larger church, with churches who have different styles than we do, different preferences than we do, different emphases than we have, with churches who have different geographies, different nationalities. Like we are not a standalone religious organization. In Christ, we're joined to Trinity Church, to the Austin Stone, to Austin Ridge, to the Well, to All Saints, to Christ Church, to Iglesia Reforma in Guatemala City, to City Church in Lagos, Nigeria. Like every local church in its ordinary life is united to the larger church. We should remember that. But the second thing Paul does here is he calls the Corinthians to unity with one another. Doesn't he? You almost just skip over it. But look what he says in verse 20. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And we hear that and we think, well, that's just like a cultural thing, cultural expression. It's probably, that must have been like a common greeting that any person would do without even thinking about it. It was just like a thoughtless gesture, kind of like a handshake for us. We don't even think about it. We'll shake anyone's hand. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying way more than that. To greet someone with a holy kiss was an expression of love. It was an expression of family fellowship. It was an embodied sign of unity which when you think back on what we've seen in 1 Corinthians, this was greatly needed because throughout this letter, we've seen how deeply divided the Corinthians were. So divided. They were divided over spiritual leaders. They were divided over business practices. They were divided over foods. They were divided over spiritual gifts. They were divided over social status. They were divided into factions like enemies. Now, are you gonna walk across the room and give your enemy a kiss when you see him or her? That's what Paul is saying to do. Like, 
The idea of a holy kiss really doesn't make sense to us because we don't really do that. But think about a, think about a holy hug. <laughs> Are you gonna walk across the room on Sunday and give a big old hug to the person you're at odds with? Like, if you do, that means something, doesn't it? To give someone a hug is not just a thoughtless gesture. It's a sign of reconciliation. It's a sign of unity. And that should be what the church looks like, is what Paul is saying. In our ordinary life, unity, reconciliation should be the norm. And then Paul ends his letter with a benediction, with a blessing. Look at verse 23 and 24. This is how he ends the whole letter. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's incredible to me. This letter is one of the most corrective letters in the New Testament. This letter has been a rebuke essentially throughout the whole letter and yet it begins with grace in chapter one and it ends with grace here in chapter 16. And it ends with an assurance that Paul loves the Corinthians. See, the purpose of his rebuke was not to end the relationship. The purpose of the rebuke was to strengthen the relationship. Right? The purpose of the rebuke was to reconcile, to unify, which is in keeping with the gospel. The gospel tells us that we've all done so many things that require correction and rebuke, but God, when he corrects us, he doesn't push us away because of our sin. He draws us close. He draws us near. He relates to us in grace because the blood of Jesus cleanses us of our sin, which means we are reconciled to him. We're united with him. He greets us with a holy kiss. God says, I love you. You're my family. When we take communion every week, it's another visible embodied practice, kind of like the holy kiss, um, of our union with Jesus. It, in, in some ways, the communion is like a holy kiss from God. It's a, remind, it's a way that he tells us, I love you. You're my family. I, I love you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he had a meal with his disciples, he took bread and after giving thanks for it, uh, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood shed for you, my blood poured out for you. How do we know that God loves us? Well, this meal reminds us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. And so when we come to take this meal, we just get a little taste uh, of his love for us. Let's thank him for this. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.